You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Stories of Jesus, New Life, and a New Family. In this series, we see that those who respond to the stories of Jesus are welcomed into the family of God, receiving new identity, new power, and new purpose. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Last week in Matthew 13, we started with this thing called the head parable, and it's a story that Jesus tells, which kind of gives direction and shape to the rest of chapter 13 and all these other stories that he tells. So we want to understand each of the stories that follow in light of what we learned in the first big parable at the beginning of chapter 13, the the parable of the sower. And there we learned that the kingdom of God goes everywhere and it grows everywhere. That's kind of a Nutshell way to remember, what is the kingdom, or what the, parable, the story of the sower, the parable of the sower about? The message of the kingdom of God, it goes everywhere and it grows everywhere. It's a powerful seed. Uh, the family of God is open to anyone who would respond to the invitation of Jesus. And we said that the way we grow is by looking and listening to Jesus. The plant will grow due to the power of the seed. And what's ours to do? Pay attention, focus on Jesus. And we saw how the main threat to our growth and the growth of the kingdom was distraction. When our eyes get pulled off of Jesus, our ears get clogged to the voice of Jesus, uh, failures to look to Jesus, failures to listen to Jesus. So if you want to know what's like the plan for you to do well in life and for you to thrive personally, I think financially, relationally, look and listen to Jesus. Don't be distracted. There you go. On paper, that sounds incredibly easy. Have you noticed, though, nobody has a crisis of faith because of how well their life is going? I mean, I just got that raise. I got an unexpected bonus. The kids are healthy. We paid off the house early. I found this inheritance from some random, and man, like, I'm just not sure God's real anymore. You know, like, that, that never happens. Jesus knows this, is le- this lesson is easy on paper, but hard to live because life is hard. It's times of trial and tragedy that make it hard to follow Jesus. Some of you don't need to imagine it. Some of you are limping, literally or emotionally, metaphorically, into church this morning. I was thinking about it just since Christmas. So not a huge period of time. So the last, whatever, five weeks, six weeks or so, some of you have gotten a diagnosis. Some of you have scheduled surgery. Some of you have had mental breakdowns or a hospital stay. And some of you, it isn't you that had to go through that. It was your child that had to go through that. For a lot of you, the trial, suffering, confusion, those aren't philosophical thoughts. They're realities that most of us have faced in the last few weeks. At some point, all of us will face the reality of a broken world. Part of what it means to live in a broken world, not all of it, but part of what it means is that we will have to face the reality of evil. We're not a church that's going to act like bad stuff doesn't happen. Or that the Christian life means everything is great and it gets progressively better until you're taken up to glory and everything is wonderful. We need to talk about it, uh, one, because it's real, but if you notice, uh, tragedy, evil, few things have the power to distract us like that does. And when the distraction comes, our eyes get focused on the evil, maybe we get discouraged and overwhelmed, and then the doubt comes. And, and the doubt, it's, 
been plaguing Christians for a few thousand years at this point, the doubt usually sounds something like this. If God is so good and he loves us so much, why is there so much evil in the world? I'm assuming that's not the first time you've heard that thought, that you've, you've wondered that. Uh, theologians, philosophers call that the problem of evil. And in 20 minutes, I will fix this 2,000-year-old problem for you just to set some expectations, right? Uh, people have been wrestling with this for a long, long time. If God is so good and he loves us so much, why does all of this happen? So again, this head parable, Jesus is teaching us how we come into the kingdom and how we thrive in the kingdom. He's preparing his disciples for the deep work of transformation that they need to move forward in the kingdom. And he knows they're about to have to face some real evil. Shortly after this, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is going to be executed. They're going to face increasing opposition. Eventually, they'll face Jesus' own execution. He's preparing his disciples to be members of a new family, empowered for a new way of life. And part of being in that family means learning how to respond well to evil. Again, not to be a people that turn our backs to it and act like it's not there, uh, to go pie in the sky, everything is great. But so how do we as Christians, as the people of God, the family of God, respond well to evil? And it's fascinating that Jesus begins addressing one of the hardest problems humanity has ever faced by telling another story. This is something to soak in as you go, to let this story play in your mind and keep asking God, what are you showing me? What are you inviting me to? So he opens this story. Verse 24, here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. So what is heaven like? Well, it's like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. A couple of things worth noting here. Uh, the farmer owns the field, so we've got a farmer. Heaven is like a farmer who owns a field and he puts good seed in it. Kingdom of heaven, think life with God, think the family of God, think life as it should be. So it's like a farmer who owns a field and he put good seed in it. It's important to see that. He put good seed in it. Verse 25 and 26, it says, uh, But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. I don't want to nerd out here too much on this, but the weed there it's, references a very specific kind of plant that in the early stages of its growth, it looks just like wheat. So when the plants were first coming up, it looked like wheat. It, it wasn't until they had grown, there was some growth, they were sprouting, that you could tell there was something up with these other plants. So, we have a field owned by a good God. I'll spoil some of the interpretation that we'll talk about in a minute. God owns the field, it's good, he puts good seed in it, and yet weeds are growing. And so servants come to him and say, this is your field, and we put good seed in it, but there are weeds here. See, it's the problem of evil. If you're so good and you own this field, we put good seed in, why all of the evil? And they ask, a, if you noticed it, a pretty understandable question. Should we pull the weeds out? Which, that's what we do, right? You see weeds in your yard? You go and pull them out. Most of us, when we see evil, our first thought is to do something about it. And I can really identify with these servants here, who we find out later are angels, um, I can really identify with the disciples as they follow Jesus. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke records a story of 
a village worth of people rejecting Jesus. They just want nothing to do with him. And look at what the disciples ask Jesus. This is from Luke chapter 9. They say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn him up? <laughs> That's a little bit funny if you ask me. It's okay if you don't laugh. But listen, these people are like, we're not really interested in you, Jesus. So this would be like if we went door to door and made you all talk to people in this neighborhood about Jesus. Everybody says no, and we come back here and try to decide if we should, you know, like Molotov cocktail the houses. They all said no, Jesus. Should we call fire from heaven and burn them? Uh, you know, back when they asked him about the weeds... The master in verse 28, look at, look at what he said. He says, an enemy has done this. See, we see evil, and we see an enemy. Is, that, is it not so us to respond by saying, well, let's destroy it? I think it's funny how over the top the disciples are. Let's bring fire from heaven. But isn't that kind of what we want to do? Have you not noticed this militant brand of Christianity that's getting more popular in the United States? Something happens, well, let's get our guns. Something happens, let's drop some bombs. Well, they're evil. Let's destroy them. There's something in us that when we see evil, we want to do something about it. And I'm not saying that desire is bad. But Jesus said, he rebuked the disciples for wanting to burn down that village. Even though an enemy has done this, and understandably the servants want to pull out the weeds, look at what the farmer says. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. So, in essence, he's, he's saying there's, there's no way to take all the weeds out without damaging the wheat. You can't call fire down from heaven to burn up the weeds without also burning up the wheat. Let the wheat continue to grow, and when it's time, the harvesters will take care of it. So, towards the end of the chapter, he explains what he's talking about here. He says the, the field is the world, the farmer is himself. He is the sower. It is God. It's Jesus. The harvesters are angels. The good seed are God's people. Weeds are those who hate God. The enemy is Satan. And the harvest is the end of the world. So if you want to know what is the scripture's response to the problem of evil, what is God's revealed wisdom to us to the problem of evil, here we go. I'll try to put it to you succinctly. First, evil is real and active which is something that it's sad to say that we have to acknowledge or emphasize these days, but it, evil is a real thing, and it's active in our world. It's real, and it will be with us until the end of the world. And he will take care of it in the end. So it's real. It will be with us until the end of the world. Do you notice that the mission statement of any of our ministries, you never hear things like, we will end hunger. Poor will always be with us. Someone will always be hungry. Evil will always be around until Jesus comes back to ultimately resolve it in the end. It's real and active. It will be with us until the end of the world. And at the end of the world, Jesus will return and do something about it.
mean, that is the best answer I can give to you about if God is so good, why do all these things happen? An enemy has done this. It's going to keep going on for a little while longer. Jesus will take care of it at the end. Going much beyond that is a bit speculative, and it's pressing into the mind of God, who rules a whole universe by the power of his word. I understand if that's not very satisfying to you. Uh, typically, if you're facing something very difficult right now, or if you watch the news at all. So, I don't think it's speculative, but I want to interpret this story a little bit in light of some of what we learned last week. One of the points we tried to make in the parable of the sower was how powerful the seed is. Again, it goes everywhere and it grows everywhere. So long as we look and listen to Jesus, we will continue to grow and thrive. And I think Jesus is showing that again to us this week because did you notice that the weeds don't have the power to keep the wheat from growing? He says, let them both grow together. The farmer in the story is not concerned about the weeds choking out the life of the wheat. What keeps the wheat from growing? Well, it's failures to look and listen to Jesus. In other words, the biggest threat to the growth of the wheat, of the good seed, of the people of God, is distraction. In this story specifically, the weeds aren't the threat, it's the harvesters. The angels who, like the disciples, say they've rejected you, should we cast fire down on them? That's what puts the people at risk, the people of God, not, not evil. Trying to handle evil apart from God's plan and God's means is what threatens the wheat. Distraction becomes the biggest danger to the wheat, which this is also, I think, um, a wake-up call or a warning to how clever our enemy is, how clever Satan is. Anybody listen to Andy Gullihorn? Anybody know who that is? He's a musician, obviously not very popular, <laughs> uh, from Nashville. And he's got a song that he wrote a while ago uh, called If I Were the Devil. And he's got a song that basically says, if I were the devil, I wouldn't wear red. I wouldn't have horns and a pitchfork. Uh, C.S. Lewis shares similar thoughts. The point is, Satan rarely comes to us saying, I am Satan. You know, like this way, if the devil obviously came up to you, you would probably say, like, I'm not interested, devil. The devil is clever and tricky. So do you see what he does? He comes in at night and he plants a seed that looks just like the other stuff that's been planted. And over time, it reveals that it's something else. He's tempting Christians with distraction, hoping that they will focus on the evil in the world so much that the voice of Jesus is drowned out. He's hoping that the evil distracts them to such a degree that the Christians will do his work for them. We put it this way. If distraction, closing our ears and our eyes to the voice, the presence of Christ, if that is what causes the plant to shrivel up and die, Here's how it works. Something awful happens. An enemy has done this. And what do we do? We zoom in on it. We create charts in our basement about what this means. We track out all the time and we're so intent on the evil. We're so intent on doing something about it. And then it gets more overwhelming. So our distraction turns into discouragement and it just keeps piling on. And after years and years of trying to fix this evil in the world, you start asking yourself, like, maybe he's not real at all. You totally run out of steam. You have that crisis of faith, and the devil's back there laughing. We didn't see it coming. 
We bought right into it and probably used good church language to go and do the devil's work of distracting ourselves and each other. The, the fact that good and evil, wheat and weeds, exist together in God's world has caused more criticism and question, I think, than any other reality that's taught in the scriptures. We have to be a people that can learn to receive what has been revealed to us, even when it doesn't make full sense to us. Because people who try, uh, people who want to understand the world perfectly or have it all make sense to resolve this tension, they will do serious violence to the revealed word of God and to God himself. So, so here's what I mean, just as like a brief overview of this 2,000-year-old topic. The scriptures reveal God to be, here's just a few things, all good, all knowing, all wise, all powerful. There's just four of the things about God that the scriptures teach us, what he's like. To make sense of a world that has wheat and weeds, people will try to diminish the attributes of God so that the world makes sense. So they'll say something like, of course God is good, yes, he's good, but he's not powerful enough to stop evil. Why is evil still here? Well, because God, though he is good, he's not strong enough to do something about it. And then when that happens, another crowd will come up and be like, no, of course God is strong enough. He's just not good. So he decides not to do it. Or another crowd will come up and say, well, no, 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 God is good and he's powerful, but he's not wise. So he's not really sure what to do about it. You see what I mean? We, we like chop legs off of God as he's revealed himself so that our world can make sense. We diminish God for the sake of our world making sense rather than saying, you are God and I am not. Things may not make sense to me. The worst route to take that's becoming increasingly popular is some people will just say, well, there must not be any God at all. And I hope at least one of you are in here and we can come let us reason together. Like, I hope you see that that is the worst resolution to the problem of evil there is. Because if you get rid of God... Good and evil aren't even things anymore. There is no category of good and evil anymore because when somebody does something and you say, well, that's evil, the easy response to that is, says who? Well, you say that's evil. I'm actually quite in favor of that thing. Somebody did that and they thought it was a good idea, wanted to do it. Well, who gets to decide what is good and what is evil? In human history... The way that has been decided comes down to who has the biggest guns. That's evil. Well, says who? Says me. And if you disagree, I will shoot you. And most people through human history have preferred to not be shot. You, you wonder how entire countries and societies and systems were built on oppressing people and killing people and dehumanizing people. And all of those people got on board. In, in America, we have the luxury of being able to say things like, well, you don't need God to have morality. You can only say that because this country, in, in large ways, not always, but in many ways, had 200 plus years of Christian morality pounded into it. So that even the people who reject God have a cultural sense that this is wrong. If, it's just not possible to have any sense of right or wrong without something that is objective, that stands outside of all things and gets to say, this is what is right and wrong and good and evil for all people in all places in all times. If you get rid of that, then life just becomes a matter of says who. Trying to resolve the problem of evil by getting rid of God just exacerbates the problem. Because 
is evil to you, but it's good to somebody else. So let's fight over who. We've seen how that's gone over history. Instead of trying to understand the mind of God, which will exhaust us and eventually drown us, if not drive us insane, instead of trying to understand the mind of God or doing real violence to what he's revealed about himself, we have to be a people that return our focus to the words and works of Jesus. In the face of evil, we look and we listen to Jesus. So before offering an interpretation of these two story, or of this story, Jesus fires off two more rapid-fire stories. They're really more like similes. For time's sake, I'm not going to explain to you what a simile is. Ask an English teacher or go talk to your fifth-grade teacher again. Should have learned that a long time ago. He fires off two similes. So first, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So he just talks about evil, and you're going to have to hold on and wait for it till the end of, the, end of, the, end of time, until Jesus comes back and the harvesters do their business. And then right after this, he says, and you know what? The kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed, which starts small and grows big. Some of you may need to go to feeder supply after this and look at how tiny a mustard seed is and go read what Jesus says about it in chapter 13. After that, he says, you know, heaven is also like a little bit of yeast that even though you put a little tiny bit in, it influences the whole dough. Maybe some of you need to go to Kroger and buy some yeast and learn how to make bread after service and, and watch how little yeast goes and affects the whole thing. What is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is small and unexpected, but it's powerful. It permeates and influences everything, even though you don't see it. No one looks at a mustard seed and is like, look out, here it comes. No one looks at you know, a little pinch of yeast and says, oh, this is really going to have some effect in it. Jesus is pleading with, with us in these stories, in these examples, to not be distracted because the seed planted in us is so powerful. It will often look unassuming. The work of Christ and the building of the kingdom of heaven will often be unimpressive and it won't make headline news, certainly compared to the acts of evil that fill our world. But the seed will grow. It's working. It's permeating. And I think one of the big lessons here when you put all these stories together is that Christians aren't so much to focus on eradicating evil in the world as we are invited to focus on Jesus. And this isn't to say like we should just be these passive Christians. Like Just real quick, as a mental exercise, think of somebody that you've known. They have to be older than 50, I would say. And you can bump that down to 45 if some of you probably don't know anyone older than 50, I'm sorry to say, but just imagine somebody who's in their second stage of life and who feels like they've been around Jesus. You know somebody like that, that you can tell they've prayed, that they've been in the presence of Jesus, you, they just feel comfortable and settled in their own skin? Imagine somebody that is so godly and you're like, I want to be like that person. I promise you that person has not been sitting on their hands with their faith saying, well, Jesus will come back and fix it one day. Right? That, they are not, they're giving to their church, they're serving. When they see evil in their world, they're doing something about it. They're not sitting back passively. These stories are not an invitation to just sit back and wait. They're an invitation to focus on Jesus who has promised an inevitable kingdom. The, the godly people in your life have spent 20 or 30 years staring at the face of Christ, pleading with him for his kingdom to come, asking him to search me, asking him to change me. 
These are people who focus on Jesus and his kingdom. Seek first my kingdom and all of this will be added to you, Jesus says. The kingdom will come. It's an inevitable kingdom. The seed will grow. The wheat will sprout and will flourish. Evil cannot stop it. Its most powerful tool is distraction. So Jesus is saying to us, focus on the wheat. Focus on the seed. Focus on the words and the works of Jesus. The best thing you can do for the evil in the world is to become like Jesus and help others do the same. If you become like Jesus, you'll love the things that he loves and you'll do the things that he does. We don't shrug our shoulders at evil and leave it alone. When we see evil, rather, we, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We make our goal clinging to his word, running to his presence, while we wait on him to ultimately deal with the weeds. The more we become like Jesus, we will love what he loves and we will do what he does. We must be a people who learn to focus our eyes and ears on Jesus and not allow the evil of the world to distract us. The ultimate picture of how Jesus responds to evil is found at the cross of Christ. We remember by looking at it that God entered into our suffering and it looked as though evil had won. We have to remember that the problem of evil is not a philosophical problem for God. It is an experiential reality. He knows what evil feels like. He knows what evil does to people. When the weeds of life tempt us to question or doubt, because that is what they will do. We will see evil and awful things happen, and they will make us question and doubt. We must turn our eyes back to the cross of Christ and remember God cares. He's near. He got involved. And if you look at the cross long enough, your eyes will drift to the empty tomb of Christ. The apparent triumph of evil was furthering God's ultimate victory in the resurrection. It was unexpected. It was confusing. It felt tragic to the people closest to him at the time. But out of the darkness of Good Friday came the light of Easter. At the cross, we learn God uses what's ugly to make something beautiful. There's too many of us here for me to, in one sermon, try to connect all of the dots of what's going on in your life. And even the people who are closest to you won't be able to offer you this neat explanation of here's what God's doing with this and here's how he'll work. The e-. it's, it's just too much for us. Those of you who watch cable news every day or you're on Twitter all the time, have you noticed how it makes you care less about more? You just keep seeing all of this awful stuff over and over and you're just kind of like, I don't know. Another thing happened. Another, because people aren't, we just can't care about everything the way God does. And when we inundate ourselves with this, it just becomes a distraction and it, it destroys our ability to care about anything. I can't connect all of the dots for what you're facing. I can just plead with you to don't, to refuse to diminish the power of the seed in your life the wonder-working power, the power that makes beauty out of ashes, that brings light out of darkness, that takes dead men and makes them alive again. In the face of evil, run to what is good, true, and beautiful, namely Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on him. He bore your sin, your evil, the world's sin, the world evil, and in his resurrection, he promises that his life, his love, and his grace gets the last word, not the evil. And one day, the harvesters will come and they will bind up all of the evil and wickedness in the world, throw it into the furnace, and it will be over forever. So we come 
to open our eyes to see Jesus laying his life down for us, open our ears to the voice of Jesus saying, come and follow me. This is the invitation with communion where we remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, thanked God for it and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After the meal, in the same way, he took a cup of wine. and He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, your new relationship with God that's sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. We can dip it in wine or juice. There'll be stations up front and in the back in a gluten-free station to my left, your right. You can use whichever you'd like. I'll pray for us and the Christians. Let's come remember and celebrate our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.